Welcome to the Adelaide Living Podcast, where we share the stories of the city. Adelaide is a city shaped by stories. Those of the traditional owners of the land and of our increasingly diverse community. Each story is unique, but what links them is the place of Adelaide, a city designed for life. So join us as we uncover inspiring stories of the people of Adelaide. How can we imagine? How can we create our future? How do we learn to unlearn, unmake, rethink assumptions and reimagine possibilities? One thing we know from futurist Dr. Kristen Alford, director of UniSA's Museum of Discovery, or MOD, is that none of us can make the future by ourselves. It builds through a collaborative process of conversation and negotiation. MOD helps that happen by building our capacity to think about the future better and critically appreciates that effective learning doesn't have to be serious all the time. Welcome. So you are the director and you are a futurist. What is a futurist? So a futurist is somebody who deliberately uses tools and techniques to help people think about the future better. And there are there are lots of different types of futurists. My particular interest is around building people's capability to think about the future uh, using, yeah, as I said, using those tools and techniques, but also helping them you know, think beyond the initial thought to structuring ways of thinking using scenarios or using um, a whole a whole range of things, really. Uh, other futurists might do, you know, scans of what might happen in the future and they're more content focused. So they'll be talking about artificial intelligence or robotics or post-COVID futures or anything like that. And then a lot of, a lot of other futurists are, are going to be you know, talking about the latest trends and and have much more of a consumer focus. So there's there's a ho- there's a whole range, but I'm really really interested in how we build people's capacity to think capacity about the future. Building. Yeah, and their capacity to think about the the future is particularly relevant right now. One might say because as we're emerging through COVID, not and not just COVID. You know, emerging through climate catastrophe, emerging through a very fast expansion in in technology and digital media, and all of those things happening at once. So what we what we may have relied on in terms of sort of generational patterns in the past cannot be relied upon quite as well <laughs> in the current in the current circumstances. So I think that that ability to think differently and to unlearn and unmake assumptions about how things might be is really critical at the moment. And critical for all generations perhaps, for all of us. Oh, definitely, definitely for all of us. I think I mean, the important thing for the audience that we designed for at MOD, which is really the 15 to 25-year-olds, is, is around thinking about the sorts of competencies and capacities that they might need to navigate the future. And when, when you're that age, you are, you're not just deciding what you're going to do with your life, but you're also deciding who you are. And it's a whole series of identity building. And so that's that's where our particular interest is there. But the unlearning, I think, is really interesting because it requires us you know, beyond <laughs> those of us beyond that age group to really rethink our assumptions. And you can see that at the moment around um, the way that we are rethinking um, racism, rethinking health, rethinking technology in terms of what 
what do we want to take from this and how do we unmake some of our assumptions to remake something new? So it's critical at any age group to be able to reimagine that. You, you're right. And and not just, uh, I suppose it's a, a blend, is it, between individuals and also communities? Yes, you can't do it without the other. You can't, you can't make the future by yourself. Uh, it's, a, it's a collaborative effort. I mean, you can you can do the the thinking, and I think that thinking and that uh, remaking of assumptions is an important kind of internal work that people need to do. But you can't you can't do the future in isolation. It has to be done collaboratively. It has to be it has to be done through conversation and dialogue. And so we often you know use this term of negotiating the future between people, you know, about putting the the desires and the wants and the needs out there and realizing that that those aren't necessarily shared that people have different desires and needs and therefore you need to negotiate and you need to come to, to something, preferably that, that benefits everybody. But, but certainly you need to come to some compromise or you need to come to some prioritisation of, of what we want the future to be. And you can see that playing out at the moment in the media. Um, so, for instance, when we're looking at post-COVID futures especially, you know, there's a narrative about needing to snap back and for the economy to recover and for people to return to jobs and, and that's, a, that's a genuine desire and a need. At the same time, you have dialogue around what happened to free childcare and, and why aren't childcare, why aren't childcare um, professionals eligible for JobKeeper? That's a that's not a very feminist future, and so people are arguing around where where are the women's voices in the type of future we want to create. You can hear that through the Black Lives Matter protests. You know about this this future. COVID isn't critical for us. Actually, you know, state violence is more critical in terms of life and death. So you can hear these futures negotiated out just just in the news this morning, and that's really where we're at that very very interesting point where perhaps COVID in itself has been kind of the the point at which those those previously assumed unbreakable patterns have broken, and people are going actually that's not the future that I want. I want something different, and I want my voice to be heard in this future. So it's a really interesting time, I think, for change. Interesting time for change, and change is better when people have the best tools. To help them with that change and that comes back to your how you see your role as a futurist which is building people's capacity so that they go into that sphere not just with this is this is my scenario and I'm going to fight to it but more this is this is possible scenarios and how can we work together and is it a collaborative more model yeah, and I, I mean, I think I think there are elements there about unpicking, you know, what is a deeply held value and, and what is what is a more lightly held pattern or habit, you know. So I, th I think some of the some of the structures that we might put into futures thinking are are around kind of getting to those deeply held metaphors and and very old patterns of macro history, if you like, so that we can understand those versus understanding things that we that we thought were unfixable or thought were unchangeable, but are actually very, very lightly held patterns and habits. So, you know, we, we can do that by testing scenarios. We can do that by testing sort of extremes. Do we have this or this? And how, how does that play out when we add a new thing to the mix? You know, what happens when we play with the speed of time or the pace of acceleration? You know, often, often leaping into like a 2050 future rather than staying in the 2020 allows us to break a whole lot of the unbreakable assumptions that we have today you know so we can say well in 2050 you know it looks like this I mean that's what we've got at mod at the moment um, an exhibition that is set in 2050 and we can say in this in this 2050 world um, there has been action towards climate and, and the world looks like this and we don't necessarily have to worry about how 
we get there and how we negotiate all of those hard kind of policy arguments, we can just step into that world and and feel it and, and see what it's like. And that gives us then room to find something different today. Which is very exciting space. Yeah, it is. And I think that's that's the that's the bit that sometimes we miss around futures is it's it is about the present, but it's about using using that 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 space that doesn't yet exist as the as the space for, for creativity. And then looking at the actions that we might bring into the present to make to make that difference. And I think the the biggest thing for me about building people's capability is you have this shift about you know, how am I going to future-proof myself? How am I going to cope with this future? How am I going to deal with all of these things that are coming towards me? And by building futures thinking capability, that slowly morphs into, well, what, what role am I going to play? And what is the future that I want to create? And it becomes filled with with agency and creativity rather than being kind of accepted. Um, and and that's, that's to, that to me is, is why I bother. That's, that's why I bother in the capability building space. Agency and creativity. Now, Modern Adelaide, bring it to that then, would would MOD be the same if it were not in Adelaide? How have the two helped build each other with agency and creativity? Yeah, I mean, this is something I think about a lot because there are there are some models of museums and gallery spaces that kind of sit at that in- intersection of science and art. And Science Gallery that, that came out of Dublin is, is one of those and that's now a national organisation. But, but we are actually really different to that model. And I think it's because we are built here, specifically designed for people here. So, so part of that is being at the University of South Australia because that has a, a long history in kind of design and creativity through the art, architecture and design school. And there's, there is a way of thinking, I think, that that, that that is embedded in the culture. And the second thing around that is, is the very strong focus on equity and access to education that's kind of built into the constitution of, of UniSA. And so some of the things that we do at MOD could not really come from anywhere else because they're so, they're so peculiar to that, to that culture and to the values of that culture, which I think is really interesting. And then you overlay that on the city of Adelaide and, and the city of Adelaide has some, some long-standing cultural aspects to it as well. So, you know, one of the first things that I thought about when I, when I came onto the role as director was had a conversation with, with Uncle Lewis O'Brien and he said, Ghana land has always been a place for learning. And I was like, that's that's why we're here. You know, I think we're, we're on this land and that very, very long history as a place for learning is important. I think a place that, that has a European heritage and social innovation is really important because it's purpose-driven and it's equity-driven, you know, and, and that, that, that happens partly out of UniSA but also partly out of Adelaide and that, that history of social innovation, I think. Um, the other thing is kind of size and space. So, you know, when I first moved to Adelaide in 2007, I moved from Melbourne where the work that I was doing there would, would take me a long time because it would take me a long time to go through the chains to find the people that could really make the decisions. And here everything is two people away. <laughs> and so you get you get to the people who can make decisions very, very quickly, but you also get you also have this kind of simmering level of creativity because because people aren't networked in siloed discipline areas. They're networked across disciplines because because of the the scale of the city itself, and so I think I think there is something in our ability to to know an artist and know a researcher and know a developer very easily that allows us to build the sort of thing that we could in mod. And I think in a larger place, 
we we might be more sort of funneled into being research centric or artist gallery centric and and here here there's more flexibility because those those networks are more easily accessible and so there is something around the size and i think the other thing that's interesting for us is we're not particularly interested in in the scale of mod it doesn't need to be a very very large dominant global entity what we're interested in is how we lead discussions around innovation and how we help help bring people along on on those innovative discussions and so what i'm finding more recently i mean we've only been open two years but when i look at the impact we're having globally it's very much around being a place where we can experiment we can trial things we can do things in a much more flexible and fast responsive way than a very large organization in a very large city which has a whole lot more constraints so there is a sense of freedom here that you wouldn't get somewhere else sense of freedom sense of creativity sense of agency you bring it all together from that very small hub. Just tell us a little bit about what is MOD? Who, who are the people that, that, that build up MOD and some of the skills they bring in? Yeah, so we have a core team of 12 people and a casual team of about 20 people. And so our casual workforce are, are on the floor having discussions with our visitors about what they're seeing and interpreting those. And, and that allows that conversation to happen. So when I said, you know, the future is all about conversations and negotiation, that plays out on our, our floor through our, through our moderators. In the core team, then we have uh you know, some some of us are devoted to the operations of MOD, you know, making sure it's a safe place and making sure that visitors have a really great time when they come, you know, that we can accommodate, you know, schools and, and some of the projects that we do around the, you know, curriculum for, for students in schools and in, and in university are, are tied to that. And then most most of the team is involved in design and production. You know, so we run two exhibitions a year and alongside that sits a program of events. And so that requires... Um, you know, design and execution. But the way that that's done is in collaboration with with quite a wide circle of people. So for the Hedonism exhibition we ran last year, for instance, we would have interviewed at least 40 different researchers. Um, when you come into that exhibition, you might see eight, but that's the that's the kind of the tip of the interviews. We probably worked with with maybe five or six different uh, producers to to make the exhibits that were in that space. We've, we featured another five or six different artists, I think, some of which were South Australian and and local, but also international artists, and so there there is quite a quite a wide range of people who who get involved. But broadly, I'd say you know it, it requires a conversation with researchers and the ability to translate that research into something that makes sense for the rest of us. It requires the dialogue with an artist to bring an idea into into being in a way that people can really engage with. And, and particularly at MOD, we're looking for things that people can interact with and get involved with and touch and be around. And then it requires, you know, conversations with producers in creative technologies or in web design or in games and interactives to, to make the things that people can play with. So it's it's bringing together all of those all of those different disciplines. So foresight, science communication, technical know-how, and a bit of uh, a bit of research sprinkled throughout everything. <laughs> Just the research, but also a great sense of fun, which you know everything at Mod it gets you engaged through a sense of fun, and that opens your, your capacity for thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think we've al- we've always tried, we've always designed to lead with the emotion. 
you know, which is not necessarily the way that science and research communication is, is often focused on making sure people have access to access to facts and, you know, that there's there's evidence there for people to, but, but actually very few people make their decisions based on facts. They make their decisions based on a combination of things and one of those things is how they feel about stuff. And so we, we wanted to make things that were highly emotional, that might be fun, but might also be a little bit icky and uncomfortable, um, that might be quite joyous, that might be puzzling, that, that might be surprising, so that the emotion drew you in. And then there was more to discover the deeper that you, that you went. And I think, you know, we, we know that people learn more when they're laughing. <laughs> you know? um, so it, it's, it's, it's part, of that, part of that process of it. Learning doesn't have to necessarily be serious all the time, you know, and so what we're trying to do is is to provide a, a space where people can come in and they feel like they belong in the space, it's welcoming, they belong at the university, that the university is also a place of inquiry and learning. And then as they get into things, there are lots and lots of different avenues for them to discover more if they're really curious about something. But it's really going to be led by then people's interests. And I think what we're trying to do is is let people lead that rather than us saying this is something you should know about. We, we, we want to put it there as a provocation and then we want to have the conversation with you about what you really want to know and how this is relevant for you. And equally, you have a very good connection with our past. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's critical, and I. And again, that's that's based on place, right? So, the University of South Australia has, you know, some quite deliberate policies and programs in place to allow access to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander studies, for instance, and and is keen to make sure that the university is a place for Aboriginal students to thrive. So that's that's the first important thing. I think the second thing, important thing is is making that connection with country. You know, and I really took that from from Uncle Lewis, but also we've worked with with Michael O'Brien, and we worked with Carl Telfer and um, Yelika, a dance group that he that Carl coordinates to to really bring that sense of place alive. And so Carl's worked us worked with us on a series of touch screens that illustrate the Ghana seasons, because there are four main seasons and another two or four wind type seasons. And you know, up until recently, I hadn't really. Th- realised that that was embedded into the landscape, which is crazy because obviously it would be. <laughs> and we find that with a lot of our domestic and our international visitors as well, that that, that isn't necessarily common knowledge to understand those seasons and, and what happens. So bringing that into play is really important. But I think, I think more broadly when I talk about, you know, futures and unmaking assumptions, part of it's also unmaking the assumption that there is only one way to view the world. And so at MOD, we are trying to be very two-way minded about the exhibits that we put in because of our place on, on, on country. And so that's really about bringing both Western ways of inquiring around the world, you know, science, technology, the way that we think about history, all, all, all the way that we think about disciplines, as well with an Aboriginal way of, of thinking about things, which is, is different and no less valid. So bringing those two ways of knowing is going to be much richer for us in the future than, than relying on one. Or in your interweaving, you make a stronger blend. Yeah, and I think you open up possibility for future. I mean, I think, you know, when, when you look at some of the the aspects of connection to country has important aspects for how we might cope with climate and environmental um, aspects in the future, and we need the environment to thrive. You know, we, we can't, we, it's where we live. Um, and so rethinking that and how we bring that in 
to to a community way of thinking, I think has great opportunity. Rethinking aspects of reciprocity in terms of you know being in relationship with each other and 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 the identity not coming just from our individual way of thinking, which is a a, a more of a Western approach, but also thinking about how we are, yeah, in relationship to each other and and what that what that give and take and what that respect and responsibility is, I think is very enriching to the way that we might think about what, you know, the, the way we might think about a system in general. So there is some there is some real value in bringing those things to to merge. And I think the, I mean, the other thing I think is really important, and we, we've been talking about COVID as well, you know, understanding the waves of pandemics <laughs> that have happened previously and how communities have responded or not responded and what the outcome if you don't understand that, we're doomed to make the same mistakes. And so having having that understanding of, of history and then being able to rethink it in the present, knowing that there will be differences because of our context, but appreciating where those similarities are is, is really important if we're going to find creative ways of making the future as well. And, and, and I take your point, it's a good one, that COVID is only one thing that is affecting us. But if we just put in a COVID lens for the moment, is there a COVID silver lining for Adelaide? Oh, I I think, I mean, I, I I'm just going to speak for myself, but but certainly, you know, I, I think back to that that wave of uncertainty in kind of early March, mid March, where you could you could sense something was coming that didn't feel like a safer place in the world than here. Yeah, you know, like we we that remoteness that we have, um, the ability to to protect i guess the 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 state because you, you don't have you don't have that population that might sit around a large city like new york for instance um it did feel very safe i mean it it helped that the weather was beautiful in april um and that everything slowed down and you could hear the birds and the real sort of sense in in community that we that we that we saw around that time was pretty special being able to not be, you know, in very high density um, kind of environments, I think is a real is a real value. I mean, I think we do need to think about that with 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 our car usage, you know. So so there are there are kind of downsides to having that very spread out population as well. But for for COVID particularly, I think there was a real sense of small numbers and being able to spread out and feeling very safe here. I think was was really important. And I think the other thing, and, and we saw this with the state government's response about working with Detmold to locally produce face masks. And, you know, we interviewed Professor Emily Hilda from UniSA recently talking about the testing of those face masks. That happened incredibly quickly. And again, I think it's that, it's that you know, that network that's able to come together and those people who, who already know each other and you're not trying to start, you know, brand new collaborations from scratch all the time because people have these these community networks that are not just about their discipline or their work because of the size and the scale. So things things like that, which I think give us some real kind of, you know, positive outlooks for the sorts of commercial and economic activities that we could do that that are benefited because of that that scale and because of where we where we sit, that we might have previously, you know, assumed that was going to be best served by a global network and by doing something at a large scale. And actually, no, there are some arguments, I think, for some of that smaller scale local supply chain work to happen. So I think that's interesting. I mean, I think the other thing that we've we've learned through COVID, certainly from, from my team, and I've got a lot of people with caring responsibilities in in my team at, at work, you know, parents or children or 
or anything, quite, quite diverse really. But being able to have that flexibility to be at home, I think, has has made a real difference to the stress of people's lives. You, you have this big anxiety of COVID, but at the same time, you're able to be there for the smaller moments. And I think rethinking that is important, not not just for the people in my team, perhaps, but we've seen that that, that kind of arrangement makes it more accessible for people disabilities or for people with those those types of care and responsibilities that make it hard to then participate in the type of work systems we've set up. And so unthinking those work systems to be to maintain some of that flexibility, I think, is is another really interesting thing that we might see emerge. And in the same way that we've talked about it not just being COVID, you know, you take people off the roads for two days a week with not having to get into the office and that improves the climate as well. So all of these things are, are interconnected, but I think finding those things that have that ability not to not to just respond to COVID, but to respond more broadly to the type of world we'd like to create, you know, one that's that's good for climate action, good for community, good for accessibility and inclusion of people. There are a lot of things that we've unmade in the last couple of months that we shouldn't remake <laughs> in, in the same way and that we should use this time to make them different. You are so right. It is a it is a time for reflection. It is a time for not having more of the same, um, but for something different. How can Mod capitalize on this time and help help us? Well, I mean, it's interesting because the exhibition that we we've now deferred to next year is all the one about is all about systems. So it's called it's complicated. Um, it's all about complexity and and complex systems and trying to understand the interconnectedness. Um, of of a range of things, and and what we know about those those system behaviours is is they are emergent, you know, they are adaptive, they are flexible, and so I think I think our biggest mistake is is rushing at the moment to put something into place. So you know we can sort of see this happening, we snap back to the economy, or suddenly Facebook's not going to let anybody work anywhere from home for the next two years. You know it's permanent work from home forever. These these very big decisive kind of actions. And, and to me, that's that's the wrong thing to be doing at the moment. So Mod, Mod, while other museums and galleries are opening, we're in June, we're opening in August, partly because of the high touchscreen and interactivity of everything that we do. But partly, partly it's also to give, to give space for us to see what the right thing to do in that moment will be and to allow us to then adapt our behaviour to something that is emerging without trying to constrain it. So we've we've purposely left the exhibition that we that we had on at the start of the year to run because that gives us flexibility to come in and out. You know, if we need to withdraw again for a second wave of, wave of COVID, we have the flexibility to do that. If we need to reduce the numbers of people coming in, we've got the flexibility to do that. If we if we if everything is great and we want to increase numbers and we want to put on lots of things, we've got the flexibility to do that. So so part of it is just being confident enough to say. The system is changing and it's emerging and we need to be able to respond in the moment rather than taking a decisive strategic action now that we think will be a set and forget for, for a long time. And that, I mean, that that's a little bit un, unsettling, but so so was pre-COVID. <laughs> it was unsettling going into a, into a world that we didn't know what it was going to be like. And so I think just being comfortable with that, we're not really sure yet, let's, let's kind of, I mean, I, I think... The, the futurist method I, I pull on here is by Otto Sharma at MIT, who says we can learn from the future as it emerges in the moment. 
if we if we try and anticipate everything, we'll get some of some of the way. But actually, we also just need to listen to the moment. And so, I think that's what we're trying to do at Mod is is create a space where we're still in a world of twenty fifty. There, um, we'll add some reflections on what twenty twenty might have changed for that twenty fifty future. We'll have those conversations with people come in through our through our casual moderators on the floor to talk about some of these things. And then next year we'll follow up with a with a dialogue around complex systems. But ultimately, I hope that in that in that twelve months period, we will have given people a little bit more, especially our young audience who's who are still grappling with how to think in in complexity. We will have given them a little bit more space to kind of understand what it's like to respond to a world that is uncertain and changing all the time, and and that can feel quite anxiety inducing and quite brittle. But a new way of thinking about that helps helps you adjust your expectations, and I and I think is is better for better for mental health, but also better better for finding those creative opportunities as well. Tell us what what do you see is the identity of Adelaide, particularly now? Oh, it's it's such a it's such a it's such an interesting contradiction, I think. So on on one hand, there's this kind of surface level conservatism, you know, which is don't 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 disrupt us too much. We're happy where we are. Some of that is, you know, we've got this 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 lifestyle which feels safe for for many. I mean, not for all of us, but for many of us. And you don't want to rock the boat. So there is there is a sense of conservatism that that I see, which is which is probably because we are you know less less exposed to the to the winds of the world's you know the winds of change in the world i think to some extent but i think what's interesting about adelaide is is that underneath that there is kind of this this raging creativity <laughs> so it doesn't take too much to break that break that brittle surface and that's the bit that really excites me so when i when i moved here my neighbors moved at, at approximately the same time um, and they'd been in london and new zealand and you know, I remember having a discussion where where we were like, "Oh, it's very, very conservative." And then a couple of weeks later, I realised that I'd met eight or nine different amazing people, all sitting under the surface, playing in really interesting spaces. So that's that's still the way that I see Adelaide in some ways. You know, that there are some things that look very fixed and that looked very neat, but actually they're not. They're they're they they should be easy to to play with, I think, and to explore. And I think there is that sense of you know, creativity and design that comes through is this sense of of the value of the of the green city, which isn't necessarily about preserving things. It's about being actively involved in nature. So I think it's got this interesting interesting sort of space where both both faces of Adelaide are are quite different, but it's the it's the creative curious one that makes me stay. And that's the one that Mod taps into. Now, one of the things that Mod does is uh, taps into that through, obviously, through all its activities. But how does Mod use art and culture to demonstrate or illustrate future possibilities? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting because the, I mean, the role of the artist is to make is to make meaning out of something for people and help people see things in a way that they might not have considered before. I'm sure I've got a million artists arguing with me on that one at the moment, but um, you know that that's that's certainly how I how I see the role of art is is to take us into a different space and in a different world and and to and to be critical or be curious about something in a way that we've not previously seen, and to tap into that emotion. And so it, 
it's essential as as part of what we're trying to do at mod is is to is to draw in that sort of sense of art and culture and and i think for us under you know bringing in what's happening locally is really important and so you know in the same way that we try and showcase the research and innovation that's happening in the state, being able to feature local artists and work with local artists to deliver some of our exhibits is is also really important. But it, I mean, it also it also ties into that you know the rhythm of the year here in Adelaide. You know where you have this you know this gorgeous long summer that then erupts in heaps of festivals and activities and and then kind of this this period of sort of rest and reflection where people kind of retreat and then come come at it in sort of in September October. I think I think that rhythm that rhythm of people engaging in art and culture is is interesting and and I think I think that goes to some of our identity as a as a city as well. There's that that we feel like it's a really critical, important part of the fabric of who we are. And it's not just, it's at all levels, like it's not just the, the major uh, performing arts companies or, or symphony orchestra, it's all of the grassroots kind of participatory art as well and it's festivals like Sala. So I think, you know, that that kind of um, diversity of, of scale of how we engage with culture here is really interesting as well. And the last thing we want to do is return to normal. Uh, yeah, yeah, because I mean, I don't, I don't think normal was great for lots of people. So you know, that's 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 the thing we need to we need to think about, and we're and we're seeing that, we're seeing that through the Black Lives protests, matters protests at the moment, and we're seeing that through the the people who protested on you know on the weekend, and that looking out at that sea of faces and and knowing that there's that solidarity for for wanting better equity and equality for people and wanting to be anti-racist in the city. I think is really, really positive. And so we shouldn't kind of then put all of that back in a box and say, well, that was just a response to the US and we it's not important because it is really important. And we shouldn't be looking at the the reductions in carbon emissions and saying, oh, that was just a special event and then go straight back to normal. Like we should be looking for, for other ways in which we can make a difference there. And, you know, you simple things, you look at the rate of flu transmission and it's much lower than it's ever been, which again is is of benefit, especially to our to our older population who are more vulnerable to um, to worse effects from from flu. And so, thinking about that community care and thinking about how we treat each other and thinking about that connection to the environment, I think those things are really important. Which isn't to dismiss the importance of economic activity or outcome and and return to work for people and making sure that people have access to the resources that they need. But if we could think about that in the context of our relationships and in the context of our environment, I think we'd have a much healthier output for everybody. I agree. Now to you. Can you tell us about your process of emerging from metallurgist, I believe, yes, to researcher, to futurist? And then part of telling us that story, what lessons are there and how does one prep to be a futurist? Yeah, I mean... It's interesting because I, I often do talks for young people about um, careers for the future. And, w- and one of the things that really irritates me, you know, is any kind of report which sort of says, you know, young people will have seven or 15 different careers and, you know, that, that's like nothing we've ever seen. And I'm like, that's, that's what women have always seen. 
And so, you know, when you when you go into the workforce and then you have children and you have to get out of the workforce and push your way back in, you, you have to reinvent yourself at all of those all of those steps, I think. And so, you know, I have had 14 different careers. And and part of that is to adapt to being part of my, you know, wanting to have a family and being part of community and and taking on those those various roles. So so I guess the first thing I'd be say I'd be saying is is don't be afraid of that transition. It's not a new it's not a new thing, and there are plenty of examples for you to look at in terms of how you might reinvent and, and readapt. And so so mine was very much around. I did engineering as an undergraduate, really really enjoyed it. Um, went to work in a mine in Northwest Queensland after after doing my PhD. Still really enjoyed it, but realised it wasn't. I wasn't terribly good at it. Like <laughs> I'm a big picture thinker. I'm, I'm not a. I'm not a really um, a great technical analyst, and so I wanted to get closer to the decision making. And also, that's when I when I met my my husband, and we couldn't both do fly in, fly out, and have a family. And so I I felt that. I mean, he's a much better technical person than I am. So I I, I moved into human resources. Which is a which is a weird sort of side path, but it was about getting close to the strategy of the business and understanding culture, and then moved into a series of of roles looking at sort of marketing and communication and strategy development and a whole lot of different things while I was raising small children, working working for myself and and so I I do things that I really didn't have a lot of background in, but that's what that's what Google's for, <laughs> you know, and I think um and there are always ways to learn new skills. And so that, that, that learning and relearning is really important. And, you know, I, I will credit a, a very good friend of mine and, and mentor, um, Dr. Peter Binks, who, who took me on for that first HR role. And I, I, when I went to that interview, I said, well, I've never done HR before. And he said, how hard can it be? And I kind of went, well, people do whole degrees in it. Like, I'm sure it's not straightforward. But that how hard can it be became a real mantra for me. You know, like I moved into comms and again with Peter and I'm like, I've not done marketing and communications. And he's like, how hard can it be? And I really, I really like that as a orientation because the answer is it, it is really hard, but it's also not as hard as you think. And I think holding, holding that contradiction is actually, is actually really great. And I, eventually I did a master's of strategic foresight, which is how I got into being a futurist, but, but it was a combination of all of those different kind of skill sets that, that really gave me the, the grounding. So, so the master's gave me, you know, access to theories and processes and methodologies to make sense of that weird career path. But actually the weird career path <laughs> makes perfect sense in hindsight. And I, you know, and then I guess some of the other careers that I've had are not paid careers. And so I also would encourage people not to think about work as the paid work only. You know, so some of that is things like starting TEDx Adelaide here and working out how to manage, you know, 3,000 or 300 people events. Part of it is, you know, getting interested in in things that otherwise I wouldn't have. So I, I worked with a with a um, animator for a long time in my business where, where he would make science animations. And so I got to produce a whole lot of those. That's not something I would have otherwise done. So someone's just saying, saying yes to the things that are interesting. Um, and and yes to the volunteering opportunities that might come because they they bring they bring rewards in unexpected ways. They certainly do, and the learning potential is so much more than just the classic linear path. Because the linear path is might be might be fine, but it could only lead you to a linear destination. Yeah, and I, I mean, I look like I've got three teenage daughters, so you know, one of those has just started university, the other two are still at high school, and I look at the decisions that they're trying to make about what they should do with their lives, and it feels very permanent, you know. And it, it 
if you if you're going into a university degree that might be you know four to six years for you to get the qualification you want it is it is a big decision it's it shouldn't be it shouldn't be done lightly but you don't you don't have to stick with it you know so i think that's that's the other thing is that as, as you learn more and as as you move into the world that that period of questioning and rethinking and all of those little crises that we have along the way, the mid-20s crisis, the midlife crisis, I'm sure we have a post-retirement crisis. Those, those are there to help us kind of make sure that we're making the most of life and not just kind of coasting along on, on a path that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. So don't be afraid of those either. Final question. What does the future hold for you? Oh, for me? Well, I've always said I'm a starter, not a maintainer. Um, you know, and you can <laughs> you can see that in that little potted career history that I've just I've just given. I enjoy that moment where you're bringing something new into being, and that that's what I've really enjoyed. I mean, and I think I think our team has enjoyed over over COVID is that you know when we, when we realised we had to close galleries, we we did this very fast pivot, and and within two weeks we'd launched a brand new online exhibition. And the enormous amount of pleasure that I personally got from, from you know, completely rethinking what we might be able to do and, you know, that, that burst of exploration was like starting mod all over again. And so I'm, I'm keen to find those new innovations that we might be able to do uh, at mod. I, I, will, I will get itchy feet if we continue to do the same thing over and over again. I mean, I think we've got a nice pattern of, of, of two exhibitions a year, but what could we do online? You know, what could we do with outreach? How do we do those exhibitions differently? I mean, we're already planning a different approach for, for one next year. And, and partly that's driven by bringing in, you know, a whole range of really interesting people to work with who've got different perspectives and different skill sets in, in the capacity of advisory groups or collaborators or, you know, researchers that we talk with. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm certainly not bored yet. <laughs> there's so, there's so much that we could, we can still do, I think, in terms of experimenting and, and setting things up. And I, th- and I think we're in this really interesting position where the disruption of COVID in some ways has made people go, well, actually, how do, how do I think about the future? And, and, and what if this doesn't have to be the way it has to be? What, what then? And so there is, there is a f- I guess, a few, a few institutions like ours globally that have a very future-focused mindset and being part of that global conversation about what does what does a community asset that helps build capability around future thinking i think is the next kind of big question but after that i'll just wait and see what comes up you know like i don't i'm not, i'm like the plumber with the leaky toilet i I'm, I'm the worst person in the world for you know imagining my own future i never really get around to it but i also trust the process and trust that you know by following interesting questions and being brave enough to say how hard can it be is is probably the the only way that I'll get to keep doing interesting things. So I'll, I'll stick with that. We hope you will. Thank you very much indeed. My absolute pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Adelaide Living Podcast, which is brought to you by the City of Adelaide. Discover more stories about people, places and projects having a meaningful impact on our city by subscribing to this podcast or visiting the Adelaide Living website at living.cityofadelaide.com.au.